it was uh, big news recently that the, the president of, um, speaking of the Jewish future, the president of Iran um, called the President Obama. And uh, some of you uh, heard the content of uh, the conversation, but some of you don't know that, that what the conversation was really about was the President of Iran um, sharing with President Obama that he had this dream and that in the dream he was looking down on America and he looked at every home in America and there was a banner across every home in America and of course President Obama said what did the banner say and and he said it, it said United States of Iran so um, <clears throat> President Obama said you know I had the funny you should say that because I, I had almost the exact same dream. I had a dream about Iran and I was sort of looking down on, on, over Iran and, and I also saw in every home in Iran there was a banner written uh, across every household and the president of Iran said, well, what did that banner say? And President Obama said, I don't know because I don't read Hebrew. <laughs> so... Um, Nice start, Rabbi. <laughs> I can't help it. They expect it of me. Um, so I was thinking, however, uh, along the lines of that story, uh, how often we, uh, we think in grandiose terms. We think about the future, uh, whether positively or negatively, our, our fears uh, often run us. Uh, every time a study comes out, uh, depending upon who you are, you focus on the things that scare you or you focus on the things that inspire you. You focus on the things that reinforce your own perceptions often of, uh, of or you focus on, on things that uh, lead you to uh, uh, fearful conclusions about our future. Uh, we have, as I'm sure we will all share, uh, fears of the uh, demise of American Jewry or of Jewry in, as a whole are certainly not new. And they're certainly, uh, they reoccur over and over again throughout our history. Not only do we all know the fact that Jewish history itself always seems to be sort of somehow hanging uh, precariously uh, by one thread or another if you simply look at the, the history of the world and all of the attempts, the apparent attempts at eliminating Jews from the world stage itself, and here we still are. Uh, how often do we talk about, in so many contexts, Israel was one of them, which is why I made reference to that cute story, um, the miracle of Jewish survival. I mean, I've heard that ever since I was conscious. The miracle of Jewish survival. This, the Romans are gone, well, not really, but the Babylonians are gone, and these people are gone, and those people are gone, and all these people that tried to wipe out Jews and kicked us out of every country in Europe at one point or another. These people are no longer here in the same way, and yet Judaism survives. And, and so we so often have couched our very existence in this kind of miraculous language. We miraculously have survived this teeny percentage of the world's population, 0 0.0, whatever it is, 2% of the world's population, depends on who's counting, just as in the Pew study trying to determine who we are, how many Jews there are in America, depends on, of course, who's counting, to me, one of the 
the great startling statistics of, of the Pew study was, I think it was 800,000 people responded that they were Jewish in partly Jewish or wholly Jewish and are also Christian. So, um, and that's an unheard of kind of statistic at any time in the past in Jewish life, certainly. But um, knowing my own congregation and my own community and the, the porousness of our boundaries and uh, that we have even here at KI in, in this community, um, I'm not totally surprised. The numbers seem high, but I'm not surprised by that there are lots of people who, who identify in, in multiple ways. I'm also not surprised in, in general that one of the overarching themes seem to be that the younger the generation, the less Jews identified religiously as Jews. Clearly that was one of the, the exclamation points and button-pushing responses uh, to the Pew study, that older Jews, uh, by and large, identify themselves re religiously as Jews, whatever they mean by that, regardless of their, their religious observance or the level or amount of their religious observance, uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other, um, whatever that end of the spectrum is, one end of the spectrum must be orthodoxy, I assume. I'm not sure what the other end of the spectrum is exactly religiously, but, um, but clearly that was one of the, one of the, the points of the study that, that was so striking, was that the, the millennial generation, or at least those in the younger generation, identified themselves Jewishly in ways other than religiously. Um, as the rabbi of a Reconstructionist congregation for the last 28 years, and as um, someone who's talked about Reconstructionism and Mordecai Kaplan's uh, definition of, of Judaism itself as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, clearly religious is one of the, the fundamental issues, but it was the community and belongingness and civilization-ness of Judaism that was certainly has been, uh, was Kaplan's emphasis, and I think has been from my own perspective, what I've seen most in here in my own congregation. That is, what gives Jews their identity is this sense of belonging to the Jewish people in all the different ways that one expresses that. And um, that identifying with the people and peoplehood and belonging and community is that uh, rope, not just a thread, that binds Jews together and has bound Jews together seems to me, throughout our history. So, um, the, the, my own personal reading of the, the Pew study didn't bother me and didn't upset me at all. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I don't usually get upset by these kinds of things. Uh, I, I have a fundamental belief when people ask, uh, are concerned about continuity of the Jewish people, that Judaism will continue as long as Judaism continues to be meaningful in people's lives in whatever form that takes, and that if it ceases to become meaningful in people's lives and add something of value to people's lives, then there probably isn't any fundamental reason for it to continue. That I see it bound up itself, the very continuity and continuing of Jewish civilization with its ability to touch people, inspire people, and provide a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives in a Jewish context. And so that's why, personally, it's, I've never been too upset about issues of continuity. My focus has been on how do we provide meaning in people's lives 
in a Jewish context. And if we can provide meaning in people's lives in a Jewish context, then I have faith that, that Judaism is going to uh, survive. I think um, I'm going to invite uh, Rabbi Fox to uh, share some of her thoughts. <clears throat> First of all, it's nice to be here. And, um, and I'm a worrier, okay? <laughs> so I read this kind of study and I do get anxious uh, for many reasons. Some are a reflection of my own history and where my parents were born, where I am and where my kids are. Um, some are the social and, and uh, cultural issues that are dominant in American society. So those things concern me. My, I'm a child of survivors. My parents were from Germany and uh, my mother was from Germany, Dortmund, Germany. My father was from Vienna. And so being a Jew in America was a very important thing. I grew up in a small synagogue in Orange County at Temple Beth Tikva with a rabbi, Chaim Asa, who was also a European from Bulgaria. And here it was Lily White, Orange County, and this little synagogue of all these survivor refugee families. And that created a very important kind of stamp on both my brother and I, and some other cousins in terms of what it meant to be Jewish in America, that we were just a little bit different. We were new here, and so on some ways it was keep it quiet. When I wanted to go to rabbinic school, my grandmother and my mother said, why would you be so public about being a Jew? And that disturbed her. Wind it a few generations, Mickey and I, my husband, got married. Um, we chose to send our kids to day school K through 12. They went to Pressman Academy at Temple Beth Am and to Milken Community High School at Stephen Weiss. And then they went to college, one at NYU and one at the New School in New York. And both of our children are musicians. They're making it, sort of. And they have a niche as musicians, particularly my younger son is a Yiddish musician. And what do I mean by that? You got a good laugh there. He plays a big bass, contrabass, and he uh, learned jazz initially, but over the years he got interested. He went to Klez Canada, a klezmer camp that teaches Yiddish that brings people from all over the world, Argentina, Poland, Lithuania, parts of America together to have cultural Jewish experiences. The first time he told me he's going to class camp, I thought, what? We'd send him to Camp Alanim or Camp S. Kramer where it was a religious, although liberal, a religious tone. But both of our kids had gotten very interested in the whole Yiddish seen in New York, as well as in Europe. He had lived in Moldova, Kishnau, Moldova, home of the pogroms, and lives in a world where Yiddish and Jewish culture matter, meaning he speaks Hebrew and Yiddish and English and German. He's interested in translating and pursuing Yiddish music and writing contemporary interpretations of Yiddish music. 
So Mordechai Gebertik was a 20th century poet in Poland, and he wrote music that Benji's reinterpreted that has sounds of fusion and jazz and um, hip-hop and klezmer in it. The reason I tell you this is that they're not so much in LA, but in parts of the world there is a cultural dimension of Jewish life. And one of the, the interesting things in the Pew study said, six out of 10 Jews identify culturally. So my question is, what do Jews do that defines it? Do we speak Jewish languages? Do we interpret Jewish music? Do we create Jewish art, whatever that means? Are we involved in dance and literature and poetry and novel writing, interpreting the Jewish message through the arts is one of the ways to carry out Yiddish culture. But the question I have is transmission. Because I'm a rabbi and I'm a mom, and I'm concerned about Jewish continuity. How do you transmit Jewish culture if you're not part of the synagogue world if you don't necessarily donate to Jewish causes or you're not part of the organized communities. You can be part of a Jewish cultural community in New York or Berlin or Odessa or Buenos Aires. But in most other places, the cultural world doesn't have the numbers, the interest, or the, the power to it. Part of the dimension of Yiddish cultural life today and Jewish cultural life is there's not a connection to Israel. So that disturbs me as well. On the other hand, my dad was from Vienna. He and his father was in the Yiddish theater and they were very much part of Yiddish culture. So I think, is this something that goes, certainly the musical, inclination, but is there something about Jewish culture, the essence of meaning found in Jewish culture, that can speak to people who don't necessarily pursue a seeking of religious experience? And I'm going to tell you one more story and then I'll be quiet. Um, Benji got married 12 days ago. Everyone say Mazel Tov. Jewish culture. It was, it was a lovely wedding. It was quite something. They began... And a lot of Yiddish music. A lot of Yiddish yeah. music. We started at Benji's apartment with some musical friends, pick, picked him up, and we walked down the block to a B&B where Julie and her family were staying. They signed the ketubah in English, Hebrew, and Yiddish. Uh, he covered the bride. I gave a blessing. And then we walked to the, but I gave a parent blessing, not a, not a rabbi's blessing, I was the mom. And um, we sang and walked with these musicians to Prospect Park. There was a chuppah, there was a rabbi, but my daughter-in-law is not Jewish. She studies Jewish life. She's a seeker. She has a master's in Jewish history and is pursuing a PhD. They're going to Vienna to study uh, for a, a PhD in Romanian Jewish history. And she's on the path towards Jewish life. So 
it felt like a Jewish wedding. There was simcha like a Jewish wedding. It was a Jewish wedding. But I'm still a little, as my kids tell me, behind the times. And that it still felt like it wasn't quite a Jewish wedding. And that I had wished, and I hope nobody's in this room who's friends with my kids. <laughs> um, I had wished that she might have gone to the mikveh before and just made that step. So their wedding and their community is the Pew study. It's the porous nature of Jewish life. It involves somebody who's seeking Jewish culture and interest and community and embracing lots of values in Jewish tradition. And it tells us that, that the boundaries that have been so significant to Jews throughout history may not be the same. And the embrace of Jewish tradition is acquired in different ways to a different rhythm. And it is, I'm still getting used to it. I'm still getting used to it. That's my interpretation of the Pew study. <clears throat> Lovely. <laughs> Rabbi Weiner. Okay, thank you. Well, I first want to second Rabbi Fox's appreciation for the invitation. It's quite an honor to be here and very special to be here with all of you. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Very, very, um, you know, wonderful place. My, my reaction to the Pew study, and I've been thinking about it a lot and reading about it a lot, is um, I could see, I could definitely see why at first it would be cause for concern and anxiety. But to be honest, when I read it, um, I don't feel anxious, and here's why. We know the story of Abraham. Abraham had his own demographic uh, challenges. You know, he got married and uh, he couldn't have children. And finally he has a, you know, a concubine, they have a, they have a child, and then, they have to, then they, his wife doesn't like it, they end up sending the, the child off to Egypt. And then miraculously she has him and Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they have a child, and God tells him to sacrifice his child. And, you know, it's looking like it's going to be quite a challenge to build up this nation that Abraham seems to be expected to produce. And he must have had some demographic concerns, like how is there going to be such a nation coming from all this complicated beginnings? And then God tells Abraham, go out and look at the stars and count them if you can. And like the stars will be your descendants. And that's what it says in the Torah. The Talmud says, you know, that what was happening was Abraham was asking this exact question. Abraham was worried. What kind of a nation am I going to build? It's so difficult. It's so hard. The numbers are not working in my favor. And God said, stop worrying about the numbers. Because he, Abraham, in the Talmud says, looked at, went to astrologists. And in astrology, he saw that it wasn't looking like it was going to be so positive. The statisticians were not giving him a good report. And God said to Abraham, don't worry about the statisticians. You're above the stars. You, you, your existence is going to be miraculous. Don't worry about what's expected. It's, it's going to be beyond that, like Rabbi Rubin was saying. And I really believe that, that um, Jewish history is miraculous. And it's not necessarily following the typical patterns of um, what we would expect a nation, a people, a religion to um, follow. And so I feel confident that um, Judaism is going to continue. I don't think that anyone who predicts otherwise is, is going to be proven correct. I think there's another another message that God was transmitting to Abraham when he told him to, to stop worrying about the numbers. 
And that was that Abraham had a mission. He was transforming the world. People call it, you know, ethical monotheism, whatever it was, a belief in one God and a God that has certain demands on people. And, and Abraham had to bring this to the world. He had a mission. He, he, had, a, he had a message to share. And I think God was telling Abraham, don't worry about the quantity. Worry about the quality. We don't know. It's the, so there will be numbers, so it will be like the stars, but it's really actually more important than the numbers. It's the quality of what you're going to produce. You're going to produce a, a radically transformative religion, way of life, thought process that's going to transform the entire world. And that should be your focus. Focus on teaching Torah and um, not on the numbers. I believe that that's what Abraham, what Abraham was being taught by God. And that's why whenever I read these demographics and these studies, I'm not, I'm not anxious because of them. I'm anxious because of a lot of other things. And there are issues that the Pew study brought up. So, for example, along these lines, if I was to look at one message for myself, for the Orthodox community, I think, you know, one thing we realize, even though there's a lot of room to just look at them and be triumphant and say, look, we're doing a good job. We're, we are reproducing and we are maintaining um, Jewish connection to Jewish practice and values and, and reproducing. And we could be very excited about that. And there's room for, for that and discussion of what, why did it work. But I, th I think for, for most Orthodox Jews, I mean, who are thinking broadly, the issue is not about, like, did we succeed, did we win? Because if you think about it, and this I learned from Rabbi Marvin Heyer of the Wiesenthal Center, you know, he often says, you know, Rabbi Heyer was just, the Jewish journal said last week he, he met with the Pope, and, you know, he sometimes gets into the White House, and he's kind of a person who um, is considered a leader in the Jewish community. So he often says, within the Orthodox community, he says, you know, the reason I get into the Pope and the reason I get into the White House when I need to and the reason I have connections in government are not because I represent the Orthodox community. Because if that's all I represented, they wouldn't care that much about what I have to say because it's just a small, tiny group and it's a group that's mostly focused inwardly. He says, the reason why I have these connections, the reason why people care what I have to say is because I represent the entire Jewish community. And the entire Jewish community includes a whole lot of people that are doing a whole lot of important, interesting things. So he often says, if I was just to close that off and just focus on my own, then we don't have any clout that we think we have. And, and so do we realize that if we were to, you know, so the challenge for Orthodox Jews is if Orthodox Jew wants to say, if we want to say to ourselves, you know what, that's it. We, we're winning. We're doing well. We don't need, we don't, we're separate. I, I even once spoke on a panel on Shavuot, like this, uh, interdenominational panel. So I went from my synagogue there after our services. It was complicated. They had to, we had to have no microphones at that point. We had to make sure that it was something I'd be comfortable with. But my friends and my rabbis were saying to me before I left, you know, isn't it like the point now where we're two separate people? Like, are, are we really, you know, is there really anything that we have in common anymore? Like, are, is it, are we one people anymore? Is it time to think about maybe we're two separate people, unfortunately? And my response was, you know, God forbid, I, I hope not. And if the challenge, you have, we'd have to respond. Orthodox Jews have a whole lot of things that they need to start thinking about if we're going to think that we can do what the entire Jewish community has done, um, if we're going to think we're going to do it on our own. I like to think rather that, you know, if, if part of the body is sick, um, you can't say, well, you know, my arms are doing well, so therefore I don't care about, you know, my neck or whatever part it might be. If part of the Jewish people is sick, it affects the entire person. 
So that's what I say in my own community, Orthodox community. We can't be too triumphant about this. We have to realize that we are one community and we, are, we need to work together. And if the community is not thriving, we have to think to ourselves about why is it that we have not presented something that has had an impact on the broader community. When I think about the non-Orthodox community, I also think about a couple of things. I think about, um, you know, and this is just what I'm talking about from the Pew study, what it said to me. One thing it said to me, especially talking about the cult- being culturally Jewish, is, you know, have we come to the point where we need to reassess are the things that non-Orthodox Jews are doing as Judaism, for example, tikkun olam, social action, is that enough to make people feel Jewish? Because after all, these are things that everyone thinks is important, Jewish or not Jewish. Is it time to start thinking about what do we do that's uniquely Jewish? What Jewish practices do we do? And ultimately, I like to think because God commands them and therefore they have, etern- they have eterna- eternality, is that the right word? Eternality. Mm-hmm. And, and what do we do that's beyond s- social action, that, that is sort of so broad that it, that it can be done by anyone? What's uniquely Jewish? And are we, are we doing something that's uniquely Jewish? Because what I hear from patients in the hospital all the time, and this is why the Pew study didn't surprise me, because I meet all kinds of Jews, and I know that most Jews are not affiliated, and I hear from b- people all the time, synagogues ask for a lot of money, they're constantly asking for a lot of money, and I started to realize that I can get what they're giving elsewhere. And this is what Jews tell me, this is what I hear from Jews in the hospital that I meet. And I started thinking, well, what do we need to think about? What can we provide that's Jewish? And secondly, an area where orthodoxy has succeeded that I would like to challenge non-orthodox Jews or just something to think about, you know, um, is if you look at the demographics, they've broken down the demographics, where orthodoxy right now is strongest is in the 16 to 25 demographic. That's where it's losing the fewest. Somehow people are staying Orthodox after they leave high school and into their 20s. I think the reason is, myself as an Orthodox Jew, I look around, I look at my family, I look at my friends. People go from high school to a year or two in Israel, and then usually pretty quickly after that to getting married and having kids. Now, it might not work for everyone. I understand that there's not everyone, a cookie cutter doesn't work for everyone, and it's complicated. But in that stage of life where people are starting to ask questions, in the Orthodox community, they're building families right away. The non-Orthodox community, I'm not saying that the non-Orthodox community has to copy the Orthodox and say, Yo, okay, you also have to go to Israel right away and get married right away. But what you do have to figure out, I don't mean this to be like me against you, I shouldn't be saying you, but what we need to figure out as a community is, what can we do, after high school especially, that keeps Jews engaged in that time period when they're going to college, and then when they finish college, that keeps them part of the Jewish community? Because if we lose them after that, it's pretty hard to bring them back. That's sort of like one thing that I'm recognizing that the Pew study um, emphasizes that it's a challenge. Rabbi Weiner, I think the issue of, of early marriage versus late marriage is very significant. And part of it is that on one hand in the liberal community you want your, you encourage your child to go to any university and to have these experiences and they're very independent experiences, quite distant from families. And then uh, many people stay where they went to school and there mm-hmm. isn't where a generation ago people might have returned to the homes, the, the city that they came from, they stay where they are. And because you don't have to be married to sleep with each other today in American society, I think that allows a kind of a lackadaisical um, relationship building that you don't need to look at relationships when you're in your early 20s as necessarily marital partners. And that is part of the 
extended adolescence that is part of American society. And second thing, I think, is the, the value that Jews have placed on work. That we really have taught our children to value work and career in many ways over and above family. And I say that as a professional woman who's worked my whole life. But it, there really is the sense of how do you balance um, succeeding in your career life and also having children as you develop that. Now, some of that requires the Jewish community to step up in a lot of ways, which include day care that would be from you know, eight in the morning till six at night so that people could have families and afford to work and have families. Um, it would be an encouragement of early marriage, which would be a question of financial resources, because we know kids who finish college can't necessarily cover their own costs of what it takes to build a family. But I think in the Orthodox community... That's why they're all coming home again. Right, they're all coming mm -hmm. home again, but my nieces and nephews marry early. And there's just sort of an acceptance. You marry early and you work it out together. And, um, and I, but I do think the openness to sexuality is very different in the Orthodox community and in the non-Orthodox community. I think there's no question about <clears throat> the the Jewish community, the, the non-Orthodox Jewish community, certainly by whatever label is uh, in many ways a, re a reflection of society as a whole, the values of society as a whole. Um, and although I think it's certainly true, and I hear it all the time, you don't have to be Jewish to do social action, to do tikkun olam, although I use the term on purpose, because when we inculcate a sense of having doing tikkun olam as we understand it, which is in many cases simply social action work, uh, in the context uh, of Judaism as an imperative, as a fundamental mitzvah of Jewish life, which our kids, certainly in the liberal community, grow up understanding. When you look at the Pew study, it identified something like 56% uh, of Jews identified working for justice and equality as one of the most important Jewish Jewish qualities they have, working for or leading a moral and ethical life, 69% said that's one of the most important Jewish qualities because we have taught that. I mean, mm -hmm. not just the mitzvah. I started out by talking about the, the mitzvah work that Bruce is doing, in, integrating into synagogue life that our bar and bat mitzvah kids understand mitzvah in many ways other than the mitzvah being called to the Torah which, of course, is the fundamental mitzvah of what bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah was about, calling to the Torah, accepting the Torah. Without question, week after week, we have here 80 to 90, you have like twice that number right over at, at uh, Wilshire. It's still happening, by the way, still happening. This synagogue, which is 1,000 families, how many families are at Wilshire Boulevard? Mm, 2,700. 2,700. So, um, anecdotally, I mean, it just happened to pick someone from Wilshire, but... You know, this is Pacific Palisades. It's not the mecca of Jewish life in America. It's Pacific Palisades, Brentwood, Malibu, Santa Monica, and this is a thousand family congregation. I don't worry about whether people are going to keep joining at all, KI, because they keep joining. They keep joining to put their kids in the preschool. They keep joining because 
The idea of having a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah for their kids is still continues to be compelling. The idea of having a Jewish sense of Jewish identity for their kids, wherever they take that, is still compelling. I'm more concerned about the other end. I'm more concerned about what do we do of meaning for the growing baby boomer population, of which I am part, mm-hmm. uh, retiring, of which I am part, uh, to stay connected to synagogue life. Because all the studies I've seen on the Pew, I, I didn't notice the same thing. I know that last time we had a study of Jews in Los Angeles, for example, we have an abysmally low affiliation rate for synagogues in, in Los Angeles. I don't know, it's 25 to 30 percent, something like that, Less depending than upon... Less Right, depends on where Less you are. Less than 25. Yeah, depends yeah. on what, what the neighborhood is, perhaps. But, you know, it's roughly around 25%, let's say, at any given moment in time. But the statistic of the percentage of Jews in Los Angeles who either are or have belonged to a synagogue is astronomically higher. It's 85%. You know, between 85, 85 and 90% of Jews in Los Angeles have at some time belonged to a synagogue, even if it's for only a three or four year period, because they wanted their kids to have some kind of an education, they, and they drop out after bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. But there's still that sense that synagogues are the ground of being of, of the Jewish communal life. As much as the Federation would like Federation mm-hmm. to be the communal institution, and you know that was one of Mordecai Kaplan's other smart ideas, having this sort of organic Jewish community notion, it's still synagogues that uh, upon whom the future, I think, of, of Jewish life as we know it rests, and the reality is that the future of Jewish life will not be as we know it. <laughs> I think that's part of the issue, that we are the evolving, I mean, back to Kaplan again, we are the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. By evolving, if you take that seriously, that means I don't know what Judaism is going to look like in America 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there will be Judaism 100 years from now in America. I believe that it will take a variety of different, different forms. I believe that the, 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 the large uh, impact of interfaith marriages and um, blended families and the kind of the culture that is now American culture, which was very different 50 years ago or 75 years ago or 100 years ago, where boundaries were much closer and tighter and more easily identified in America. I think the, the breakdown of those boundaries, it was, it was um, Alexander Schindler, of blessed memory, one of the... the Our first boss. The, my first boss, exactly right. Um, <laughs> when I used to both work for the... Union of American Hebrew Congregations at one point, but Alexander Schindler, when he was president, one of his great uh, comments was that intermarriage is the sting that comes with the honey of our freedom. It's a beautiful statement, and I think it's powerfully true. Intermarriage is the sting that comes with the honey of our freedom. Once the the ghetto doors, so so to speak, uh, and literally and symbolically opened up, then your kids go to whatever college they go to, and if we're still two point something, whatever, 2% of the American population, that means 98% of the kids they meet are not going to be Jewish. That means everywhere they go, 90, unless they're in a more sheltered or more closed community, as the Orthodox community tends to, to be, as, as Reverend Weiner so I think beautifully articulated, going from college to Israel and then into marriage, helps to keep that community together in that way. But for all of the rest of the, the majority of the Jews of America, because the majority of Jews in America are not Orthodox Jews. So for the majority of Jews in America, it's like rolling the dice every time. Because, mm-hmm. uh, and that's probably, where birthright becomes important. That's why all of those other... Summer camps, exactly. other kind of work experiences. And clearly all of the America. research shows that camps in Israel are the two 
for the non-Orthodox community at least. Camp and Israel, the most important things in terms the, of continuity. Absolutely. They, they are the there two was, most reinforcing identity builders of the liberal Jewish community is Camp and Israel. Um, I read an article by Art Green, who was one of my teachers, uh, a rabbi, a thinker at the Hebrew College in Boston. Wonderful, former, former president of the Reconstructionist Medical College. Former president of the Reconstructionist College. And, um <laughs> He, he wrote an article that really talked about spiritual seeking. Yeah. That part of it, he said, basically, it was called um, something like, how is it? Will Torah emerge from the Pew study? And he looked at people who are seeking in American society, seeking religious experience. Jews who've traveled the whole religious route. Jews who became Buddhists, traveled throughout the world, find different kinds of things, come back and say, oh, isn't there some spiritual tradition within right. Jewish life? Zohar, Kabbalah, Hasidic tradition. And there's sort of a dabbling now in those ways. Israelis who grew up secular do their post-army um, sivuv uh, around the world, and they come back and there are some inklings of spiritual communities there, of secular yeshiva, of arts communities, of support for studying Jewish life in ways different than a straight ahead yeshiva study, but opening it both to spiritual study and a critical study. New ways for people to think about Jewish texts. And he talked about seekers in American society who look for religious experience, who have come into the Jewish world. And my own experience in, um, in often teaching introduction to Judaism over 25 years, years ago, people would come as a couple. Somebody's getting married, they wanna have their husband or wife become Jewish prior. In the last 10 years, I noticed in classes that people are individuals curious about Jewish life. Having had an experience on a college campus where they took a Jewish history course, or they studied archeology, span or they came from a Bible Belt kind of background and said, I wanna understand what the Jewish part is. And I think that one of the things that Art Green talks about is how the spiritual seekers, both within uh, born Jews and those who choose Jewish life will infuse whatever is the next spiritual experience of Jewish tradition. Curious, but interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that, that I ended up working on this book, Becoming Jewish, um, was because I see so, in, in my work here, and my colleagues all in other synagogues have similar experiences, there, there are so many non-Jewish seekers to Judaism who end up, for a variety of reasons, finding Judaism as one of those most intriguing sources of modern spirituality. That is because we, we live in a culture of spiritual seekers without mm -hmm. question. There's, there's you know, millions of different versions of it. And Judaism, because frankly, it's old, um, is one of the great draws of Jewish spirituality is that Torah. 
Exactly. When, when I sit with, even with my bar mitzvah kids and my bar mitzvah kids, and, you know, they sit in my study, which is like every rabbi's study filled with books, and they look around at these books, and I have this conversation with them, and I say, look, you know, if you're an author and you write a book, and, and 50 years later people are still reading your book, that's a huge success after all. Oh and, you know, and when it's going to be your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you're going to stand in front of the community, you're going to open a scroll, and you're going to read from a book that's literally more than 3,000 years old. I said, who has 3,000-year-old books to read from? You know, we do. We have 3,000-year-old books that we literally read week after week after week. If you find a 3,000-year-old document somewhere, you're going to put it in a museum. That's what we do with ancient script, ancient documents, but not the Jewish people. We, we have it right behind us, three of them. We take it out every week. We hand it from generation to generation. We, that's the most powerful moment of every bar mitzvah, every bat mitzvah, that passing of that Torah from generation. And it's not necessarily what that week's portion says or what those words say. It's the idea of being a part of something that goes back so ancient, that's so old, that there must be inherent fundamental value in it simply because it's existed and continued in that miraculous way for all of these thousands of years. That touches even 13-year-olds who, you know, are as cynical as often you can get when it comes to these kinds of issues. And they get moved by that. And, I, and that's what, what I have been finding in just in the contemporary community in which I am, you know, privileged to work, that people come because they are interested in what is it that's allowed us to survive? What's the spiritual draw that's here? And, and they often don't call it religious. I mean, so when, when there's a lack of identification with Judaism as religious, but rather Judaism as culture, I, I think it's an, often a language issue. It's uh, how what people are more comfortable, how they're more comfortable identifying themselves as opposed to whether they identify themselves strongly as Jewish or not. Certainly ritual is powerful, and one of the challenges we have in liberal life is the whole issue of mitzvah, of not feeling that if God is not the supernatural being who commands in the traditional mitzvah sense, then what's the point of mitzvah? I think that's always been the issue with liberal Jews. In what way are we commanded? Or what way do we feel compelled to do, to light candles on Friday night, or to say anything, or to get up in the morning and say a, a prayer in whatever language we, we say it in? Um, and that, but that's been the same challenge ever since the reform movement started in Germany. Whenever the, every liberal movement has that same issue, finding where's the, where's the weight, where's the power, where's the strength, where's the commitment? Why do people continue to show up even though they don't feel commanded in the same way? And part of it is all these other reasons that people identified in the study of their own Jewish identity from, you know, your son's music, which draws him deeply into a sense of Jewish community and connection to social action, that they're doing it. Yes, anybody else and anybody who's a good human being should care about the poor, should stand up for those who are exploited, should fight against slavery in the world that still exists today. But when you do it, because you understand it to be a mitzvah of Jewish life, then every act that you do is a reinforcement of your identity as a Jew. But one of the time. things in terms of cultural continuity for many people, for many cultures, is language and music and food and art. And those are the ways that people continue the ethnicity or the cultural or the spiritual aspects of identity. I, I often think, where does music come from? It, that uh, although my kids say they're secular, you know, they're rebelling from their mother being a rabbi too, let's be 
real. <laughs> um, there's also the sense of that art is a spiritual gift. It, it is something that comes from somewhere else. And, and how do you express Jewish life except through some of the languages we have and the forms? So we take yeah, I'm going to take questions, right? Can I say, I think we've missed the one, like, the, the one key ingredient. I think we've spoken about a lot of important things. And of course, Israel and camps and synagogues and culture and music are so important. But I think when it comes down to it, the number one thing when it comes to Jewish commitment, Jewish continuity, is education. I think that is yes. what, that's the main thing. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, you can still see them today on the Lower East Side. There's very big synagogues that, some of them are still synagogues, others are other things now. There was a great Hasidic rabbi that came to America in the 1940s, and he saw these huge synagogues, and he, and he saw that the Orthodox community was struggling keeping people Orthodox, and he said, the problem in America is that you build big synagogues and small schools. He said, in my community, we're going to build big schools and small synagogues. <laughs> and for the past 60, 70 years or so in the Orthodox community, the key focus has been on day school yeshiva education. And for the most part, that has been what has inspired and en enabled Jews, Orthodox Jews at least, to maintain a fidelity mm -hmm. and excitement about Jewish tradition. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. We're learning. So, Fox. Yeah. And both of them have to do with the idea of inclusion. I have felt separated from orthodoxy by various associations with orthodox Jews who see me as a reconstructionist as not really Jewish. To hear you say we are one community, we must work as one community, I wanted to say here, here, okay. I agree so completely with that. And also the idea of inclusion with your Thank you. Of welcoming the richness as America has welcomed the richness of cultures into your family and into our Jewish family. We are adding to the richness by including this lovely young woman who will bring the dimension. So thank you for the idea of inclusion. That's why I always say there are three kinds of Jews. There's Jews by birth. Jews by choice and Jews by association. So, you know, you, you have a Jew by association in your family now and you never know. Yeah. I always thought there were three were the, the three were those who are good at math and those who are not good at math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I'm the third one. <laughs> yes. You can't hear? You're welcome. Creative destruction goes on all the time. I'm 72 years old, and I don't know one person in the B'nai B'rith. The American Jewish Congress doesn't exist anymore. So when I look at that report, I, talk about, I start thinking about all the institutions that this community has built where demography is taking care of their future right now. 
So when we look at the continuity issue and we say, what is the community like? There will be somebody here, but I get very uncomfortable with the idea of culture and a sort of soft approach toward life because when Karen goes, Karen's culture goes with her. Something has to stick. And I am concerned, does the continuity, how do you educate towards Jewish language without schools, either Hebrew schools or Yiddish schools or day schools? Right. Well, that's what, yeah. what we just heard about the Orthodox. What's so strong about Orthodoxy is the education. And, and, and I do think that's why people go to synagogues. Uh, one of the main reasons they join is for education to Jewish identity. Uh, and, the, you know, it's, it's certainly with the liberal community, the whole issue of day school education, there's no question but the day school education you get is, is uh, in a transformative way fundamentally different than the education you can get in any synagogue, no matter how fantastic the synagogue school is, because... I'm not going to monopolize this, but I, I, one of the things you didn't mention in the Pew report was a phenomenal statistic. Uh, breathtaking that 32% of those polled have no problem with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Doesn't mean they think he's the Messiah. Doesn't mean they believe he's the right. Messiah. They right. just don't have any problem with the idea. So you talk about education. Well, that's because they were asking and Jews. Boundaries. Th that's why, because they were asking Jews, do they have a problem with the idea that a Jew might be the Messiah? <laughs> well, you think someone else is going to be the Messiah? No. So, where are we going? I'll just move right up here. Okay, then I'll be over. Thank you. Um, it was a great, great discussion. Uh, when you were talking about how people don't identify themselves as Jewish or as religious, even though they might have feelings of cultural identity and family identity. It reminds me of women who say they're not feminists because <laughs> the name connotes something that may not really be the full meaning of what the word is. And these women most likely are feminists. So I think that it's very possible that we need to think about what does it mean to be Jewish? It may be being a Jewish musician is that you're having Jewish spiritual experience. And so you are religious. So saying, I'm a Jew, but I'm not religious, I think we have let the word religious be defined for us, partly because we're living in a Christian culture. So we look at Christian religion and say, well, I'm not that kind of person. I don't believe in that kind of a God having that kind of a role in my life, so I must not be religious. And I think in Judaism, we could take a broader idea of what does it mean to be a religious Jew and actually talk about it in our schools, I don't, in liberal communities. I don't know how many classrooms actually talk about what does it mean to be a religious Jew? What is spirituality all about? It's like we're so afraid to use those words and to talk about those concepts to our kids and so they grow up not having a sense of where spirituality plays a role in their Jewish lives. So I think that that's really a direction that if we just went down the role of religiosity as a liberal Jew, it could really expand. Mm -hmm. Just um, as a comment, there's a lot more God talk within the context of, of certainly the schools I know of at Wilshire Boulevard Temple and other uh, reform schools over the last 20 years. A lot more conversation about where's God's presence? Do you have a relationship with God? How do you create a personal 
experience with God, where's God in the world, where's God in the prayer, where's God in person. It was very different than when I grew up as a, as a reformed Jewish kid. And, um, and I think it's just percolating. It's more acceptable in society to talk about God. You know, I, I read a certain... I read a survey a couple of years. There was a, I read a survey a couple of years ago, not the Pew study, but there was a survey of American Jews asking them, "What is the one observance that makes you most identify with the Jewish community?" You know, people thought it would be Passover or Hanukkah. The number one thing, according to this survey, was not having a Christmas tree, mm-hmm. which was yes, a little bit depressing. Well, we're often defined by what we're not. Exactly. And, and, and clearly, in America, when you're a Jew in a non-Jewish right. world, uh, that that's very much. Right. Totally understandable. That's yeah. how our kids kids grow up. Are you, you know, are you Hanukkah or Christmas? Are you Hanukkah right. or Christmas? Right. Yes, go ahead. Uh, so uh, I am a Jew by choice um, and raising two children, uh, 16 and 13. And um, so, you know, it's doubly complicated because obviously they could make their own choices. Um, and I just want to echo what Lori said about religiosity and kind of talking about millennials. And when I talk to my children about faith, they're almost a little anti-religious, you know? And I think it's just, it's being a teenager too, and kind of, um, it's not cool to be religious maybe. Um, but I, I feel like it is very possible to be a reconstructionist, liberal Jew who feels that reading the Torah is a transcendental experience. Um, And I feel like with our children, being millennials, they may not be, they're not the have-to generation, you know? Mm -hmm. They may not be Jewish because their ancestors were or because they feel they have to. Like when I ask my husband, he says, well, I went to synagogue because my parents told me I had to. Whereas my children will say, it just doesn't feel authentic to me, right? So... There's a different perspective for them, which is wonderful that it has to feel authentic and it doesn't have to be a have to. But also, I think that mystical, transcendental feeling of reading Torah and feeling like God is with you really could speak to this millennial generation. Uh, and, And it seems a little like we apologize for that. We don't really bring it into their lives. And if they don't get it when they're young, it's hard for them to pick it up when they're older. So, you know, I just, I really want my children to read Torah even though they hate it. (laughs) And to try to get the experience of what it's like so that they actually, if they decide not to, they have something to say no to. They've actually, I feel like that's my obligation. But it doesn't seem like a lot of parents feel that way, and um, I don't know, I just wanted to see what you think. Thank you. By the way, Linda's son is one of the, the most articulate students in the confirmation class, never stops talking, always has an opinion on everything, but always intelligent. I think that's part of the whole Jewish culture of wrestling with and arguing with authority, particularly if it's me, if I am the authority, but you know, that's part of what they do. You know, it, it's hard to get our kids to love what we love when we come to what we cherish. I mean, I love reading Torah. You know, I love teaching Torah. I love just Torah, period. Of course, I became a rabbi, so it's not surprising, I suppose. Um, 
I never asked my daughter what she thinks about Torah. I, I won't ask her because she's here. But, um, but, you know, it's not this, I mean, the next generation is not the same as this generation. We're not the same as our parents' generation, or they weren't the same as their parents' generation. Everyone finds our, our own level and our own passions in life. What we want is for everyone to find their own Jewish passion in life, even if it's somehow different than the passion that I particularly have. Either of you want to comment on what Linda said before I... I, I was just thinking I saw hands. Um, this is really interesting, and there's a lot of things that one could comment on, but going back to what you said early on about... Oh, yes, my father was the founding rabbi of this synagogue. Abraham Winokur, Zichron I'm Shana Winokur. Um, uh, you said something to the effect that if Judaism isn't relevant to people, then there isn't a reason for it to continue. So, yes, so... I am not, I am, as long as there are people, I'm not worried about, what I'm worried about is that the human race will disappear, that we will ruin this planet, that we are killing ourselves as a whole um, culture, a culture of, um, you know, increasing haves and have-nots, um, an overpopulated planet that's using up too much resources, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the reasons for that and the reasons for some of the things going on in Judaism are very similar. And what it comes down to, in my opinion, is the lack of organic community, the extended families and the organic communities where everybody in your neighborhood was in part of your culture. And so, of course, you had all the Jewish foods together. You did music together. It was organic. I mean... Music is the most natural thing for any person to do. It's only in modern times, in Western civilization, that not everybody sings. You go all around the world, you grow up singing, I grew up singing, you can sing. This is, it, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's something as characteristic. What, um, what I think in terms of going, getting back to just within the Jewish community, the thing, one of the things that I think threatens that possibility of more communalism is the differences within the Jewish community. And that echoes something that you said about, um, you know, we have to look at the whole. One of the things I heard, you, um, you said, and I know you didn't mean to equate Yiddish culture with Jewish culture per se, but it kind of echoed through there. And I was thinking, well, what about the non-Ashkenazi Jews? They have their own synagogues. There's a lot of separation. Sometimes people just join whatever synagogue there is. A lot of my Sephardic friends in the Bay Area joined whatever synagogues, but their Sephardic culture as a result kind of got mm, in the mix. Um, the same thing for, you know, other minority groups within the Jewish community, like people like me who um, have a far left-wing perspective about what's going on in the Middle East. We feel shut out. We feel that, you know, we are literally shut out in many cases. We have sometimes not been able to get jobs because we don't toe the line politically, even though we have very strong Jewish identity and we have strong Israel identity. We just disagree with the political perspective. So there's, you know, there's stuff that we could be doing to knit our community better. Thank you. Any comments? Or, yep. I'll just keep moving the mic around. I am the one that the Pew Report says is not here this evening. I hate my... Can you hear me if I just speak 
Yes. <laughs> Only if it's really loud. Hold just ask somebody from the choir to shout it out. <laughs> I am the one that the Pew Report says is not here this evening. Um, I grew up in a very secular household. My father comes from an almost anti-religious background, and that includes an old world grandmother who lived with him when he, until she died when he was a young man. Um, my mother was confirmed as a teenager. In fact, she was confirmed at Wilshire in Rabbi Magnin's day. Um, but that was simply a social thing that everybody in my grandparents' social circle did. They all joined Wilshire. That was, I mean, it, it was an extension of your friends, it was your business contacts, and your children were confirmed. <laughs> that was the extent of my mother's religious education. My father has less religious education than the cat. Um, in fact, at a recent family wedding, he was asked to recite the Hamotzi, and I had to write it down for him. Um, I heard a rabbi speak when I was a teenager who said that one of the problems that we face as a Jewish community was that if you do not have at least one Orthodox great-grandparent, you will not identify as Jewish. And um, being a teenager with a big mouth, I told him he was mistaken. None of my great-grandparents are Orthodox in the slightest, or were, I should say. Um, as I mentioned, my parents are not, my grandparents. And yet I've been a member here for nearly 20 years. And so I am the one that the Pew Report says is not here, hmm. but I am. Mm. <laughs> and we're glad you are. We're glad. Because <laughs> <laughs> the choir would miss you if you weren't in it, so. <laughs> So I haven't actually looked at the Pew Report, just learning a little bit right now. However, it would seem to me that how it's being interpreted is that um, the Jewish culture is being judged to be either um, successful or not successful at growing or uh, dying into the future based on the headcount. However, I would really be asking the question of um, whether it's the, the mission statements of the individual temples are being successfully executed um, and how well it's being executed across the whole population of the nation. Um, because we can have a steady supply of people within the, uh, oh, it's staticky, a steady supply of people within the, uh, any given temple or even less people that are even more devout and um, be further encouraging uh, education uh, or other mission statements, uh, and therefore bettering the population as a whole. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. See, so in a sense, back to the business model of is is the synagogue as an institution clear about what its goal is and what its articulate what its mission is and. Uh, is it fulfilling that mission? And are there ways to measure? How do you measure whether it's being successful? And, and we tend to go to numbers. Well, we're being successful because, oh, we're a 1,000 families. We used to be 200 families. Gee, now we're a 1,000 families, so we must be successful. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are um, fulfilling the, the underlying mission of what this synagogue is about if all we're doing is caring about the number of people who sign their name and say I'm, I'm a member but if it doesn't mean anything so uh, synagogues are supposed to be places of Jewish life and and uh, 
that are teaching the values that we have passed from generation to generation in our various denominations and our various streams of Jewish life may have different approaches or different emphasis on one aspect of Judaism or another, but regardless, every synagogue has fundamentally to its, its mission the passing on of what we value of Judaism to the next generation, not merely having numbers. And, and I think it's, a, it's an apt comment and, and a challenge. Mr. President. Thank you. Uh, our temple has the same challenge that we have across the religion, which is families seem to cease to be paying members when their children are bar and bat mitzvah. And I'm seeing that in my family, and it's very distressing. I've been a member for 42 years, give or take, a couple of months. And why did I pay dues all that time? Well, I was able to, although this congregation under our senior rabbi's tutelage, if you can't afford to pay a dime, you don't pay anything. We have one family paying, I think it's $156. I don't, why not 150 She wanted to pay 156 And they're members with all the entitlements of our membership. I stayed a member because I identify with our religion. I used to say that I was a secular Jew until I learned what that meant, and I am not. I'm a Zionist, and I am, I'm the president of the congregation. I believe in the religion and our God and our ways and our, our, our liturgy, and I'm, I'm warm and comforted and happy to be here in our show. And I wear a kippah to show that I, it's, it's my temple, our temple. I don't know uh, what, what my kids are up to. They don't, they're not allocating the dollars. They're getting by. They're doing okay but to dues. But all four of the grandchildren will tell you they're Jewish. We had a B'nai mitzvah a year and a half ago and a Benot mitzvah in another six months, the two, the two younger grandchildren. And so I, I think in terms of how do we perpetuate the religion, it's by example. Mm. My mother, who I give credit for all the things I do that are good, said to me, we are Jewish and you will stay Jewish as part of your being. <laughs> and we lived in a neighborhood in Chicago that had 3,000 children in Queen of All Saints, St. Mary's of the Woods, 300 children in the public school, and two Jewish families, <laughs> the Kennises and the Lurries. And I was criticized and called a kike because I took off Jewish holidays, and the, my fellow students said, why doesn't he have to come to school on Christmas? And I said I would if the teacher wanted to come, and she didn't, <laughs> you know. But I, I think in, in terms of keeping our children in the religion, we need to set an example for them, make it available to them, even those of us who are, we'll call it liberal, non-Orthodox Jews. So we're in public school or private school, but not yeshiva. That's, that's my best hope. Thank you. By the way, we're ending in 10 minutes, just so you know. Yeah. I just want to uh, say something and then ask something. Um, uh, what I want to say is bitterly funny. Uh, my ex-husband uh, did not have much of a religious background. He was like fourth or fifth generation American. His grandmother knew Buffalo Bill. I mean, th that's what he came from and Christmas trees in the house, but they were all Jewish. Uh, and when we were dating, uh, this was a long time ago, and he was smoking at the time, and he, my mother had us, uh, him and me, and everyone over for Shabbat dinner, and what does he do? Uh. He takes the cigarette, and he lights it on the Shabbat candles. <laughs> Now, those of, those of you, that's why I say it's bitterly funny, those of you who may 
know my mother, you can only imagine the different colors she turned. Um, and the other thing I want to ask is, um, what do I say when I'm told a Christmas tree is not a sign of religion? Mm. It is. Uh, what's the question exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Can oh by other Jews telling you it's that they're having a Christmas tree because it's not a religious symbol? Is that what you're saying? Want to comment on that? I, I'm I'm glad Show. to comment. Um, I do think it is a religious symbol. I think it reminds people the symbols in many ways of Jesus on the cross and the images of of eternity that was part of the greens and the reds that are symbols of blood or of life. And I think it is a very significant religious symbol for people who are serious Christians. And just that gives it a power in a religious community that sees the experience of having a Christmas tree as an extension of, of the eternality of their religious faith. And that's why it feels uncomfortable or, for me, not appropriate to be in a Jewish home. So I'll give you a different And I have plenty of Wilshire Boulevard Temple members who've said to me over the years, well, we used to, but we don't do this now. And I think there was certainly in the 20s and 30s and 40s attempt more for Jews to mix into American culture and that people of my generation and people younger feel comfortable being Jews in American society. I think it, I think it does have, um, uh, in some ways, um, it has uh, different connotations to different ages of, of uh, uh, and different backgrounds that people come from. I know that um, because I've been doing interfaith marriages for 37 years now, um, that subject comes up often when I'm involved in talking to counseling uh, couples before they're, they get married. Um, and then when I was doing research on interfaith marriages, that was certainly one of the questions and issues that came up, um, December issues and holidays. And, um, and I remember, in fact, just the other day, literally last week, a woman who's a member of our synagogue uh, reminded me that when she, before she got married years ago, she and her, she, who was not Jewish at the time, and her husband-to-be who was Jewish came to talk to me, and the one thing that she was most agitated about was the possibility of not having her Christmas tree. And the reason she came, mentioned it last week was because she quoted that in that meeting, I told her, have the Christmas tree. Um, and because I told her that I thought it was, because I was a rabbi, first of all, so I, in her mind, represented all Jews. Um, and I said, so have the Christmas tree and see how it feels and continue to have it. Um, she said, because I said that, she felt it was okay to get married to this Jewish person, that it wasn't going to be a, a, a major conflict with her. She had the Christmas tree.
for a number of years and eventually stopped having the Christmas tree and actually eventually became Jewish. But, um, but that was her point to me, I mean, personally, because a lot of people are coming up to me this year in particular and telling me stories about something I said at one point or another, usually something they liked, but um, <laughs> mo most of the time. Uh, and in her case, it was that her, her point to me at the time was that I, my attitude toward her was open and non-judgmental and mm -hmm. inclusive, and so she felt safe in taking whatever leap she was taking, um, which is one of the reasons, personally, it's just my own anecdotally why I do what I do. And in my conversations when I was working on a different book years ago about the interfaith relationships, my experience was that m so many of the non-Jews who, for whom Christmas was important and for whom trees were important, for them had nothing to do with all of the real associations with Christmas trees that Rabbi Fox has just enumerated, all of which are true, and its origins and what it symbolized and everything. But, but my experience in Judaism and with non-Jews as well is that there's two kinds of religions. There's sort of practical religion, and then there's sort of the technical religion. That is, the religion, if you take the book out, is what does Judaism say about, and you read what Judaism teaches about, or what does Christianity teach about or say about, you would read all of the associations with all of that stuff related to Christmas and wreaths and everything else, and colors and red and flowers. But that doesn't necessarily have meaning to an individual person for whom Christmas is none of that and may just as easily be the most positive, loving, warm, happy family time of the year and the only time when my family doesn't fight, which is what I heard over and over again from people. So it's not an easy answer. To me, it's not an easy answer because Rabbi Fox is 100% correct that that is exactly what all of those things technically represent, but it may not have any of those meanings to an individual who grows up one way or another. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. and we live in a Christian country, and do I suggest that Jews have Christmas trees? No, I don't suggest Jews have Christmas trees. But I also don't get that plugged into uh, to any of those rituals. To me, that they're, people choose things, they try things, they see how they feel, they find meaning, they don't find meaning. I would rather have Judaism be the kind of place, synagogues be the kind of place that encourage people to experiment, to find their, their roots, to find their spiritual center, to find what we have to offer as something that will inspire them, and that the fact that we're connected to this Torah of thousands of years helps to give us weight and meaning and that's where personally I come from in this, and we have a, two more minutes, and then we're going to end. So I'm going to have these two over here, and I'm going to apologize in advance for everybody who's not going to get to speak. And I'll try to be brief, because I'm either the final or the penultimate question. Um, it's not really a question, but I just want to observe that you really can't have this discussion about why Jews are unaffiliated or why so many Jews are unaffiliated without talking about money. And we really have not. I agree. Um, when a synagogue, and this is also one of the reasons why I think the, the Orthodox movement, particularly the Chabad, is so successful uh, in, in recent years, um, when it costs anywhere from 1500 to $5,000 to belong to a temple, you're limiting who can join. Mm -hmm. And there are an awful lot of people who Pretty don't... young people. That, and, and I know what this temple's policy is, um, that... You know, that, that you can join and pay 150 bucks a year. 
uh, but there are an awful lot of people who don't feel comfortable asking for that. Correct. And so they will choose not to join. Right. Um, and they may come to services and they may do a lot of things, but they won't get the high holidays tickets. Now, you know, I was one of those people at one time when I was a lot younger. I've been a member here for more than 40 years, but, um, or maybe it's 39, whatever. But the, um, but we came here the first time, uh, primarily because they didn't charge us to come at some part of the high holidays. And then we became comfortable with the place and we joined. At, at a certain point, we were able to. And uh, I, I think if, if temples were open like that, the way the Chabad is, uh, nobody asks you to pay any money if you want to go to Chabad service. They'll drag you in off the street. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can go to their Yom Kippur services and their Rosh Hashanah services and not pay a nickel. And Yeah, I'm trying to get you. Sorry. My wife is, is nagging no, me. I'm just turning it toward you. Go ahead. Do you want to nag on the microphone? Uh, <laughs> This, anyway. is his, this is his brief. What are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, so the point is that, that um, there's a, you know, when we just talk ideology, yeah. we're yeah. not talking practically. And, and I think that's one of the Orthodox are the most practical of all, even though they don't look like it. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Any comments from yeah, the I rabbis? Mean, I, I think a lot of what, what we're talking around is, is, you know, even with the Christmas tree example and the organic community is the importance of the home. From my perspective, as important as synagogues are, and I hope this one, uh, you know, it's not, uh, uh, well, I can think of it in Hebrew, uh, heresy to say this in a synagogue, but a synagogue is not necessarily the, I mean, uh, the home should be a place where Judaism is, is infused, and especially on Shabbat. I think that that is a way, however people want to observe it, that that is the way to make a Jewish environment. Whatever, if there's a Christmas tree or not, and I think that's the way to make an organic community. If people feel that they have to have a Shabbat observance, they need to live close to a synagogue, they, and all this doesn't necessarily cost money. They're just making their homes into a place where they are, and, are making a Jewish environment, especially one day a week, and living, needing to live near other people who do the same thing. I think a lot of this stuff, is, the discussion has changed. And... And, and be, exactly, you don't have to be affiliated, that's what I'm saying. Let me just, uh, two comments, um, quick, uh, before Judy uh, shares whatever she's going to okay, share. Okay. Um, you may have read that, uh, first of all, we stream all of our services live. You don't have to come to any service physically in the building. You can have the, first of all, you don't have to pay, obviously, to come to any Friday night service or any service anyway. But secondly, uh, we, like lots of synagogues now, are streaming all their services on the mm -hmm. internet. When... Um, we, we've had people literally come from Germany, as some of you know, because they saw our services on the internet and decided they wanted to come and, and connect here with, with KI, and they literally flew across the world to do so. When, when um, uh, Neshuva service, uh, you know, high holiday services were broadcast, uh, streamed live on the internet this year, there were tens of thousands of people all over the world who watched High Holidays, who participated in High Holidays from wherever they were because, because the rabbis married to the editor of the Jewish <laughs> Journal, so they got a lot of publicity about it, which was a great thing, and so everybody was watching it. And thousands of people, thousands of people, and, I, and, the, and my only comment is because we, uh, no one's mentioned it yet, and we're going to end in a second, is that the internet is changing the world, and it's changing Jewish life as well. 
and it's changing Jewish community as well, and it's changing how people identify as Jews as well, and it's changing opportunities for how people can connect one with the other and how they can learn about Shabbat observance and any other observance. On my iPhone, I have all these, I have a Torah app, I have all kinds of Jewish apps, and I had one that was a blessing app that you go to whatever the thing is that you're interested in blessing, you push on that app, and it'll go, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamotzi Lechamin, and you don't have to write it down for your father. You can just give him, show him the app and push it. Because that's the, that's the future of the world, and whatever else is going to take the place of that, if there is something, 10 minutes from now. But in any event, that's part of what I mean by there's no question but that we're an evolving religious civilization, and I don't know what we're going to be like in 100 years. I don't know what we're going to be like in 20 years, because that alone is transforming how people connect and what they mean by community, how they're learning about Judaism. They don't have to walk into a building to learn about Judaism. They, there's a million, literally probably, a million ways through the internet that you can now study Jewish, learn about Judaism, learn about Jewish ritual, simply by picking up a telephone, you know, and going and looking at it. It's not that it's a substitute for, but you also can't stuff the genie back in the bottle. That's what's happening. And part of what we need to do as institutions is figure out how we can also be connected in a meaningful way to the explosion of media that has transformed the world and connect in that way. So, yeah, Judy, this is going to be the final thing, even though other people want to okay. talk. What I wanted to say is that the colleges have certainly changed. They all have Jewish studies or Yiddish studies or, uh, uh, so that the students are in touch with Judaism. The Chabad's active, the Hillel is active. And I was surprised, I understand UCLA has 4,000 Jewish students. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, I, have, I think that's going to have an effect because the students want to learn more about Judaism. They take the class. And uh, my granddaughter just decided to have it as a minor, Judaic studies. Good for you. Yeah, it's a beautiful point because there are more Judaic studies classes offered now on a college level than ever in history. In fact, America, you know, we talk about the golden age of Spain. This is the golden age of Judaism. Yeah. Right now, right here in the United States of America, there is more opportunities for learning Jewish music, for creating Jewish music, for creating Jewish art, Jewish culture, for studying on a, on a serious adult level. You don't need synagogues alone. That's what I was referring to with the Internet, to be the source of higher Jewish learning as well. And we have so many other options. It's like you know, water slipping through our fingers trying to get a hold on it. But that's in part because our mindset is old. Our mindset is this is what, there's a picture of what the Jewish community is supposed to look like with these buildings that have, you know, here's a beautiful building I'm standing in, you know, that we had to raise millions of dollars to build so that we can, we have to raise millions of dollars for our endowment so we can keep having this forever. But that's because that's also our image of, and that's, that's part of what we're all about. And, and it's hard to talk about something that you haven't experienced yet, which is the future. So I'm, I I'm wanted to stir you all up. I did some of that. I want to thank my guests. <laughs> thank Please you. thank my guests, Rabbi Fox and Rabbi Weiner, for coming. And uh, if we do this again, we hope we'll see you all again. Thank you very much. Thank you.